When I pray uh, the words that Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, and I pray the words, your kingdom come, when I pray that, I'm, I'm saying, God, I submit my life to you, and I'm, I'm your ways. That's what I'm submitting myself to. And I'm also praying for a vision, a vision of what could be and should be when the people, when people align themselves with Jesus and begin looking like the author of their faith. And sometimes my faith is just really weak. There are moments when I'm, I'm just so weak and I just need to see somebody else who's just living it, who, who is someone who's willing to risk it all for, what they, for the love of what they've come to believe, someone who has gone through the storms of life and they've hit them and they're still standing, someone who struggles with the world like I do, but yet they haven't got sucked in by the comforts of this world and they've been able to remain faithful to Christ. And sometimes I just need that evidence. I need to see people's lives. And so in the next eight weeks, as we talk about the Sermon on the Mount, which is found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, as we look at that, I'm also going to be bringing to you uh, some of this evidence that myself and some of the guys on the team uh, went out and, and collected video interviews with some people. And we were working to put together a short film that's kind of a, a documentary and, and, and a little more artistic. But what we'll be presenting to you is just some uh, little snippets from these stories of people and their testimonies. And it's just evidence that, that these words of Jesus are just not pretty things to hang on a wall somewhere, but they're actually words that we're to embody in what Jesus wants. And each of the people uh, in this film that we're putting together in some way embody the teachings of Jesus. And some of them are seemingly ordinary, uh, others are extraordinary. Some are young, others are old. And a one man's testimony actually lives beyond his life here on earth. But they're all, all these people are salt of the earth. They bring out the God flavors of life and preserve what is good. And for me, they help preserve my faith and help me hang on, kindling a desire in me to practice the ways of Jesus. And so I hope uh, in the next few weeks as we share some of these videos that you'll be encouraged too. If you are given two lists of qualities to choose from, which of these two would you choose? Would you like to be poor sad, hungry, and hated? Or would you like to be rich, happy, well-fed, and popular? Probably most of us, including me, would choose the second list. Some people, though, spend their whole life ensuring that they get those things. Rich, happy, well-fed, and popular. In fact, it's, it's what their whole total existence is about. It's what candidates... For the president, try to promise to give. But what if we're pursuing the wrong things? What if we have our whole value system upside down? In Jesus' longest, complete teaching, I'm confronted. I'm confronted with teaching of values that seem a total contradiction of the world I live in. A paradox, a turning of things upside down. In this teaching, what has become known as the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus describes to you and to me a picture of his kingdom, an illustration of what his people are to be and what they're to look like. And if I know anything about Jesus, my Lord, I know that he 
is in a kingdom that is right side up. And I'm the one in a world that's upside down. And I want to align myself to his kingdom, not this world. The Sermon on the Mount, what we're about to get into for the next eight weeks, is very dangerous. I'll just tell you up front, it's, it's dangerous. If you really look at it seriously, and if you think about it, and then if you try to practice it, it's dangerous. And it's dangerous in two different ways. And it's dangerous in the sense that Jesus actually lived out this teaching. And, and the apostles lived it out. And the early Christians lived it out. They became right side up in an upside down world. Counter culture. True counterculture. They didn't wear black and paint their faces. And it wasn't an outward counterculture. It was inward. And it showed up in their choices and the way they lived. And some who saw them marveled at them. They gave praise to God and they joined them. They said, I want that. I want to be a part of that. Others were disturbed. They were agitated because there was this peculiar group of people shining light on the futility of the world's approach to life. Their approach to life. There was a different kind of people saying, what makes life good is Jesus. And you really can't trust those other things. Money, position, power, rules, or even a perfect family. It just won't fulfill in the end. These people who lived different and were different were agitating. That's dangerous. The world didn't like it then, and the world doesn't like it now. The Sermon on the Mount is also dangerous in another way. It's dangerous in the fact that it's quite well known by people who don't live in a state of grace. One of the most well-known portions of a verse in this country is from the Sermon on the Mount. It's don't judge. Of course, that's just the first part of it. There's a whole other part that goes to it, and it's in a context of something else that, that, again, if people knew the whole meaning, understanding of it, they may not be so quick to throw that out. And it's funny, because I guess there's some people that think if, if they, uh, they adopt this attitude of don't judge, somehow they are more righteous than everyone else. And you can see it right then and there. You can see it. And you see it in other folks who don't even spout those kind of words or things. But there are people who are ready to trust in a set of instructions. That, but they don't want to trust Jesus. A person can sit in this room, this room right here, and be a very kind, well-meaning, generous person, a doer of good. And they can listen to teaching like the Ten Commandments. And they can cherish this thought. In, the, in their heart and in the back of their mind that somehow, because they've done some little list or done, done some sort of set of instructions, they have entrance into the kingdom of heaven. They trust these things instead of trusting Christ. They fail to trust Christ by doing things. Isn't that crazy? Yet there's a lot of Americans that do that. Then there are others who think because they're simply born in America or had church-going parents that somehow they have some sort of spiritual blessing that just rests on them. They're just automatically somehow uh, have entrance into the kingdom of heaven. They fail to trust Christ by doing nothing. So in this country, we have those who fail to trust Christ by doing 
And we have those who fail to trust Christ by doing nothing. But let me tell you what, the gospel eradicates both of those things. The gospel speaks of something different. The Sermon on the Mount is for those who have experienced new birth. You're not to do the things in the Sermon on the Mount so you can enter heaven. That's not why Jesus said that. The Sermon on the Mount is for those who have already entered the kingdom. It's a description of what people in the kingdom are supposed to be like, not what people out of the kingdom of the world are supposed to look like. It's like the Constitution of the United States only applies to citizens of the United States. The Sermon on the Mount is like a constitution only for citizens of the kingdom of heaven. You see, the constitution is a picture of the qualities of a citizen of the states. And it's, it's what they're to, these qualities that they're to possess and to be recognized by others. The Sermon on the Mount, in the same way, is a picture of the qualities of a Christ follower, what they're to possess and to be recognized by others. So in fact, to really practice the Sermon on the Mount, it is only really possible for those who are in the kingdom. To live right side up in an upside down world, you, you have to have a dramatic change in your life. Why is so much of the church in America ineffective, fake, and foolish? It's because there are many attending churches and they are unchanged. They've never experienced change. What did Jesus say to Nicodemus? Nicodemus, who was a very kind, well-meaning, generous, religiously attentive person. Jesus said to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, you can't go in as you are. You're in need of a new birth. That comes from trusting Jesus Christ not from observing a set of rules. So this isn't the series that we're about to get into on the Sermon on the Mount. This isn't another message series about showing up and trying hard. You've had to have discovered new life to be able to live new life, as described by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. So I, I, I want, up front, I want to apologize for the fact that today and for the next seven Sundays, the messages will be exclusive to those who have already experienced new birth. Now, I usually preach under the title of, of all access, meaning my calling in life is to proclaim the message of Christ clearly for all, whether they have no background in the ways of God or if they've grown up with it all their life. And I'm called to help outsiders become insiders. But I've found it necessary at this time in the history of Highland to preach this major teaching of Christ that is only for those who have had their lives turned upside down by him, or in reality, right side up, I guess. So over the next seven weeks, I'm going to be speaking like I normally do, so I believe anyone is going to be able to understand the message, but not everyone will be able or be empowered to live it. My only hope for outsiders who are listening in today in the next few weeks is that, one, you will truly know what a Christ follower is supposed to look like, you'll be able to spot the phonies and the fakes from the real. You'll know what's counterfeit and what's genuine. So it's, it's not totally a waste of time to be a part of this and listen. The second thing that I hope for is that you'll, you'll truly come into a confrontation with the words of Christ. You see that if, if you doubt my words, 
that someone outside of grace can try to live these things, that, that maybe if you doubt it, you'll try it. And if you seriously take a look at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount and look at those first four Beatitudes, and if you really tried to apply those to your life, I believe that you'd be wiped out, ruined, wrecked before Jesus, and you'd stop trusting the things of this world or stop trusting a set of instructions, and instead you put your trust in Christ. So, remember, you can't enter the kingdom as you are. And the Sermon on the Mount is only for those who are in a state of grace. This is a message for those who have already placed their love, loyalty, and friendship with Jesus Christ. So now that I've warned you about the the dangers of this teaching of Jesus Christ, I can go on and we're going to take kind of a a bird's eye view of the Sermon Sermon on the Mount. Just an introduction and then we'll be getting into it more next week. First of all, I want you to know that, that this is a different sermon, what's in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, than what's recorded in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 6. It is a different message, it's a different sermon. Even though there are similar pieces in both sermons, it was delivered at two different places at two different times. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are called the Sermon on the Mount because when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying... So he preached it on a mountain. Therefore, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. The sermon in Luke says he went down with them and stood on a level place. In fact, many scholars call it the Sermon on the Plain. So, two different sermons, and I'm not going to be comparing the two, all right? Sticking with Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And in honor of Jesus and his teaching, I am going to sit down. All right. This is the longest recorded teaching of Jesus that's given in one setting. We've, we have the, a record of the beginning of this message. It says, he began to teach them saying. And then we have a record of the ending of this message. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowd were amazed at his teaching. So most of the time in the four Gospels, we just get little snippets and sound bites of Jesus' teachings, or, or we get little specific moments when he was interacting with some people. But because this is a teaching of his in one setting, from beginning to end, we get to see how Jesus takes many thoughts and puts them together in one cohesive message. And there's something special about this cohesive message, that it is a vision of what his people are to look like. So looking at this message in its entirety, a person can tell Jesus moves from real general statements to particular statements. In the beginning from uh, verses 3 through 16, Jesus gives very broad statements that have to do with the character of a Christ follower. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Blessed are the merciful. And, uh, And then he goes on to say what happens when a Christ follower embodies these things. It's character, meaning he describes what a Christ follower is to be, not so much do. And that's why this first section of chapter 5 is called the Beatitudes. Uh, Just think in your mind, if you're trying to define Beatitudes, it just means be these attitudes or be these qualities. This state of being for Christ followers then defines their relationship to the world. If we become these things, we are these things, then we end up being salt. We end up being light. Verses 17 uh, through 48 of chapter 5 begin moving out of broad statements to particular statements. But Jesus generally is saying 
in each specific instance, be concerned with the spirit rather than the letter of the law. Be concerned with the spirit of it. In chapter 6, Jesus' message gets even more specific by moving to the inner life of a Christ follower. Jesus begins to teach what the Christ follower lives in his life, that he, Christ follower lives his life in the presence of God. He begins talking about how a Christ follower is to pray, how they're to fast, how they're to give. These are all things that have to do with the inner life. By living in the presence of God, the Christ follower is not interested in impressing others or trying to put on an inner life display for others to see, but they're only concerned with their relationship to God. In this section, Jesus specifically speaks the words, don't be like them. And the them referring to uh, what he called pagans, uh, probably what we today say is just people who are just not Christ followers, people who are not born of God. The central idea throughout the Sermon on the Mount is contained in those words, and it's shown throughout. And that central idea expresses one of God's eternal purposes found throughout the Scripture, that God desires for himself a holy people. And what does that mean? A people that are set apart from the world and are set apart to God. We're told that we're to be different. We're told that we are to be different over and over. That is the central message in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, I find that really troubling to me because I know for myself, and for um, a lot of us here in America, that we, we all, to some measure, try to fit in. We try to fit in. And I, I'm not talking about being a freak or an oddball in some sort or, or trying to really put on some sort of display to be different. But a lot of times we're working to fit in. We're concerned about what's cool. In fact, for the past 30 years, the church in America has been patting itself on its back for how well it's been fitting in. And has been saying to the world, hey, look, we're just like you. And the saddest remark is that the world is turning and looking back at us and saying, yeah, you know what? You do look like us. You're not any different. And that's the saddest thing that could ever be said to a Christ follower. Well, we're told to be different. We need to be different. The rest of chapter 6 goes on, and Jesus explains that this difference also comes when his followers meet the problems of life, that he or she is to face them in the light of their relationship to the Father. The difference, or the set-apartedness, is based on a relationship to the Lord, in trust, in trusting Christ. The difference isn't based in the t-shirt that you wear, or the bumper sticker that you put on the back of your car. It's not the WW whatever on your, rest, on your wrist. That's not supposed to be the distinguishing mark. The basis for the difference is our relationship with a loving Father who cares for us and that we trust Him in each and every different circumstance that we face in life. The last part of the sermon, which is the most misquoted by the unchanged, Jesus speaks of, the Christ follower always living under the judgment of God with a reverent awe of God. Your grandpa and grandma, if they were Christ followers, they, they would have called it having the fear of God in you. That's what would they, they would have called it. And Jesus talks about this, having a reverent awe 
of God and who he is. Jesus moves his message to the most inner part of us and tells us that God looks at the inside of a person. And what God finds in the heart is going to be weighed and judged. Jesus concludes his sermon by telling the difference between the follower who hears his teaching and practices it and the one who hears it and doesn't practice it. Compares it with two houses and a storm hits both and only one stands. The one who put it into practice stands, withstands the storms. Basically, Jesus concludes by saying, these ain't just a bunch of pretty words to hang on your walls, folks. Live it. Do it. Be it. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in its entirety is an illustration for us. We ask, what does it look like to be a Christ follower? And this is the painting he puts before us that we're to hold up and look at. I don't know if you've heard the story of the great stone face. Uh, I think it was originally done by Nathaniel Hawthorne. And it's, a, it's about a, a mountain up in New Hampshire. Uh, I think maybe even on the quarter, they, they put the, the stone face on it, on the back of the commemorative quarter. But it's a, it's a story of, of a mountainside that looks like there's an image of a face, a man's face on it. And the legend goes that there was a village beneath it, and in this village was a young boy that would go up and stare at it. And uh, the story goes in the village that someday that there was supposed to be a great man or a great leader that would emerge in their, in their region who was this man, the stone face that was represented up there. And it was this kind of prophecy, a prophetic thing that was in the, in the town. And this young boy would always go out and stare at that, and he'd wonder. He'd wonder what that man was going to be like. And uh, as he grew into a, a young man, he'd go out there and take walks by himself and, uh, again, think about what could this man look like? What would it be like if he lived in our village? And as he grew into a man and took up work in the village and started his own business, he'd often take little lunch breaks and go out and sit and stare at this stone face. And the rumor has it that at the end of this man's life, that he was the man with the stone face. He became what he dreamt of, what he imagined. And then he began living that noble life of that great leader in that little village. And so fulfilled the story of the great stone face. In the same way, I feel like the Sermon on the Mount is that great stone face that we're to look at and envision what we're to be like. And it's us. We're supposed to become that. We're supposed to sit loosely with this world, not sit too close. We're called to be set apart. We're called to be followers that belong to another kingdom. We're to have a different character, a different life. You know, if Christ has claimed possession of you and you trust him, you belong to him and his kingdom. Your new birth has turned you and turned your life upside down or in reality, right side up. And the Sermon on the Mount is a masterpiece you are to become. And if you haven't encountered grace and been turned right side up by new birth, then this masterpiece, this kingdom life will seem upside down to you and impossible to you. And you'll write it off as impossible. And that's all right. I'm talking to those who have had their lives turned upside down. Over the next several weeks, I'm going to be looking more closely at the parts of this foundational teaching from Jesus. And we're going to see the possibilities of living out these words with a trusting relationship with Christ.
I suppose that there are some folks that could try to live out portions of the Sermon on the Mount. But it's just mechanical. There's no life. There's no spirit in it. But I want you to know that the Sermon on the Mount is is your Moonlight Sonata. It's to be played by you with the spirit of life that has been placed in you by the immortal king through faith in Jesus Christ. And let's, let's start sounding like that symphony he has imagined and composed for us. It's different. It's, it's, it will cause you to sacrifice what is cool at times. It is counterculture. It's dangerous. But it's also very beautiful. And it's who we're called to be. You pray with me right now. Heavenly Father, help us just to gaze, gaze at these words that are a vision of who you want us to be and what you imagine us to be. Lord, for those of us who live in a state of grace, who live under your rule, Lord, just I pray that you'd well up within us a desire to truly be what you desire us, even if it means being counterculture even if it means sacrificing the coolness that we strive to, so hard to, to be able to fit in, even if it means that maybe uh, we're looked upon differently, maybe if it means that it's not always uh, such the popular thing, Father, help us to be willing to live dangerously. Lord, help us to love when no one else wants to love to be merciful when no one else wants to be merciful, to mourn over what no one else mourns over. God, set us apart. And I pray that especially for this this group here, Highland. Lord, we want to be your salt, your light, your, your, your moonlight sonata here in Asheville. Help us to play it and be it with the life and spirit that you desire. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.